Hear the word of God from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, starting with verse 35. Be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning, like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, will have them recline at the table, and will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? The Lord answered, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It will be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions. But suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour when he at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, but the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. From, every, from everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. I have come to bring fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to undergo, and what constraint I am under until it is completed. Do you think I came to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. From now on, there will be five in one family divided against each other, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He said to the crowd, when you see a cloud rising in the west, immediately you say, it's going to rain, and it does. And when the south wind blows, you say, it's going to be hot. And it is. Hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky. How is it that you don't know how to interpret this present time? Why don't you judge for yourselves what is right? As you are going with your adversary to the magistrate, try hard to be reconciled on the way, or your advers adversary may drag you off to the judge, and the judge turn you over to the officer, and the officer throw you into prison. I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord.
Good morning, church family. Hope you're well this morning. It's good to be able to be with you this morning and to be Easter people alongside you. And what I mean by that, when I say Easter people, what I mean is that we are people who live every day in light of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are people who live with that living hope, that reality. Do you guys know that Sunday was moved to the day of the Sabbath, the day of rest, where we worship together, because this is the day of Jesus' resurrection. So Sunday became the holy day of the Christian calendar, Christian week, because we come together every Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now we get to live in that reality every day, but every week we come together and we celebrate. We acknowledge, we praise, we thank God for what he's done. So what a great love the Father has lavished upon us that we get to be people of resurrection hope. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke, and this morning our text is a topic that's often talked about in the New Testament. It's about the return of Jesus. To come, when he's coming to come to make all things right, to judge the quick and the dead. Theologian and author Arnold Olson puts it this way. Ever since the first days of the Christian church, evangelicals have been looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. They may have dis disagreed as to its timing and to the events on the end times calendar. They may have differed as to pre-tribulation or post-tribulation, rapture or pre or post or non-millennial coming. They may have been divided as to a little rebirth of Israel or however all are agreed that the final solution to the problems of this world is in the hands of the King of Kings who will someday make the kingdoms of this world his very own. The Lord will return. I'm going to say that again. The Lord will return. That is a promise given by Jesus. Let me give you some quick statistics. In the New Testament, there are 260 chapters, and the return of Christ from his heavenly throne is mentioned 318 times. So on average, that means one in every 25 verses mentions the Lord's coming again. This was a serious topic in the New Testament. In fact, the only, in the only New Testament books in which his return is not mentioned is Galatians and second and third letters of John. So every other letter, every other gospel, every other book of the New Testament mentions and talks about the second coming of Jesus. Jesus himself said these words when he promised his return to the earth. In Mark 13, he says, at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he'll send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. And these familiar words in John 14, he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. It's throughout the whole New Testament. Jesus is coming back. So one, really quickly, we should assume that this is an important truth to us. Yes? Can we make that logical leap there? So the, here's one of the frightening and disgusting things, though, is that many churches, when they talk about the second coming, when they have this idea about the return of Jesus, they either spend way too much time studying the details of the Bible, trying to find out what political events need to happen in order to predict when he's coming back. 
right? You guys know what I'm talking about? In my lifetime alone, there's so many people who claim to be able to crack the code of the Bible. If you read every other third word, or if you, if you did this, or if you saw it this way, that the Bible said this, or if you saw this political figure coming up from here, and this person doing this, and then that means this, and they were just trying to focus exactly when Jesus was coming back. Their, the sermons and the, the church was only be like, Jesus coming back next week, or Jesus, or it'd be like the year 2012, or 2011, or 2000, whatever it may be, they were just focused on that. That's all they cared about. But, on the other hand, some churches didn't seem to care at all. Didn't seem to preach, it didn't seem to matter. Jesus is coming back, that's not what I care about. I'm just worried about my life now. And when you see, when you say the Bible, you see that on the one hand, the second coming of Christ is one of the most important, if not one of the chief subjects of the New Testament. Yet on the other hand, the Bible gives you almost no details to help you understand when that's happening. See, the point of the Bible's teaching on the second coming of Christ is not to help us find that great day. It's not how we'll find the great day, but how that great day will find us. The point of the teaching of the Bible, the second coming is always ethical and it's force. The Bible is saying, don't worry about when it's coming. Just know that it can come anytime. And consider what kind of lifestyle, urgency, joy, optimism, and energy will be the characteristics of anyone who lives in light of the second coming of Jesus. That's how we're supposed to live. The Bible insists over and over again that the risen and extended Christ will return. And in our lesson today, Jesus tells his disciples a parable about the absolute necessity of being ready for that day. Can I tell you, my, most of my experience when it comes to the second coming of Jesus is usually when I say, come Lord Jesus, when something bad happens. You see what I'm saying? When I hear about a tragedy, when I hear about another shooting, when I hear about people being hurt, my heart longs for this idea, for this time, for, for Jesus to come back and make all things right, because I know something is just wrong. Something is wrong. And that's typically, oftentimes, the end of my focus, oftentimes the end of our church's focus, at times people's focus, on the end times of Jesus. But here's the truth. We need to live in reality of his coming. And that's a beautiful reality to live in. Before we get to the lesson itself, let me put the lesson in context. Jesus has just told a parable of the rich fool. You know, you guys know the parable? He was a guy who stored up great wealth in his barns with this idea that in my retirement, I can eat, drink, and be merry. I'm going to have an easy life. I'm going to store up as much wealth as possible. And then if I work really hard, store up as much as possible, then I'm just going to chill. That's the word. That's in the Bible. That's the translation in the Bible. It says chill. In reality, he was a fool in his heart because he said in his heart, there is no God. And he lived in that way, that this life is all there is. And on the night that he saved up enough, he built enough storehouses so that he could begin his easy life, he died. And so the message of that parable is don't be like this man, Jesus told his disciples. Don't be rich in the things of the world and poor in the things of God. Don't live as if this life is all there is. Be rich in the things of God that will last and satisfy. So in our lesson today, Jesus illustrates this truth of the parable about wise servants. You can think of these wise servants as being the opposite of the rich fool. The rich fool said in his heart, there is no God. These servants lived a holy and reverent fear of a God. In other words, in this illustration of the master. Verse 35 says, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. 
like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. So let me set the scene a little bit here. The master of the house has gone to a wedding, a big old wedding feast, a massive celebration, and weddings in those days, they could last for days, which I can't imagine weddings lasting for days nowadays because they cost so much money, but totally different ballgame. In those days, they would go for it, it could last for days, so they didn't know when the master was going to come. It was anyone's guess. Master could come back tomorrow, it could be five days, they just had no clue when the master was coming back. But while he was gone, his servants remained ready and dressed for service. I love this translation. One of the old translations says their loins were girded, right? I don't know why, but I like that translation. The loins were girded. In other words, they wore long robes, you know? And so what they did is they pulled their robes kind of between their legs so they could actually move easily. This is me moving easily. And tucked their access into their belt so that they were able to be of service, to be able to move freely to, without tripping over themselves. They were ready to serve, and this is important, right? Because if you're not ready to serve, if you're not ready, if you're not dressed appropriately, sometimes it's hard to serve. I'll give you an example. My cousin, when I was in high school, offered me a, a, a little job. And then my cousin was a little bit older than me. They were like in their late 20s. I was in high school, so I thought they were really cool. So my cousin had this house. He bought a house. He's like, Lawrence, come. I want you to work for me, and I'm going to give you a lot of money, which was a lot of money for a high school kid. Right? So I was like, yes, I was pumped up. I'm ready to work really hard. I'm going to show them how awesome I am at working. But I showed up wearing basketball shorts and a t-shirt. That's all I knew. Right? I didn't have gloves or tool belt or anything. I just was like, you want me to work? I show up with basketball shorts and a t-shirt. That's pretty much my only attire I owned at the time. I lasted 10 minutes working. I think I had blisters on my fingers and hands like right away. Like they just appeared. Nail and wood was getting through my shorts, scratching my bare legs. I may have been wearing flip-flops. It was Florida, so yes, I was wearing flip-flops. I wasn't dressed for a job, so I couldn't do the work I was hired to do. My cousin actually had to send me home and say, go put some jeans on, get a belt, here's some gloves, then you can work tomorrow. You need to be dressed for the idea. The idea behind this parable is that we're constantly ready to do the work and calling that God has placed upon us. It's not only to live with eager anticipation of Jesus' return, that's a part of it, but to work diligently at the calling God's given to you to do. Martin Luther was once asked what he would do if he knew the Lord was going to return the very next day. So he came up to Martin Luther and said, hey, Martin, Marty, what would you do if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow? And he replied, I would plant a tree. That's a strange thing to do. Know that the world was going to be radically altered, and you know that Jesus is going to make all things right. He would plant a tree in the 24 hours left of life he had, when a tree would take at least like, I don't know how many years it takes a tree to grow. 20 years? Is that how long it takes a tree to grow? I don't know. Yeah, yeah Morgan, have to tell me now. But Luther was making this point, that he would work at his calling. His calling was to plant trees at that time. That's what he was interested in doing. And no matter what, right up to the second that the Lord appears, he's going to do what his, the Lord has called him to do. What he's been passionately called to do at this moment. So he was going to plant a tree. In other words, what Martin Luther is saying is that if you're a teacher and you knew that the Lord was coming tomorrow, what should you should be doing? You should be showing up to teach. If you're a doctor, you should be seeing your patients. If you're an accountant, if you're at your desk, work diligently, you should be at your desk working diligently. A faithful servant working in the Lord's vineyard at whatever task he's given you to do. Let him find you there faithfully and cheerfully doing what he's called and placed you to do. If he's called you to be a campus minister for, for outreach, 
you should be doing that. If he called you to be raising your children, teaching them, you should be doing that. You see, the idea is God has called you to his service right now in so many different ways. He's blessed you. He's called you. He's given you tasks and responsibilities. And the idea is that if he's gonna, you know he's coming tomorrow, you should just be faithfully doing what he's called you to do. And that's glory. That's honoring your God. That's how you're serving him. And can I tell you something that if you right now feel like you're not called to do anything, then let me, let me tell you something really this is something, something kind of difficult for you. You're like, Lawrence, I don't really feel called to do what I'm doing. Right? right? Can you, how many can be like, yeah, I kind of feel that, right? How, how many of you guys can be like, I'm not really called, you know, doing this doesn't really feel like my calling. Can I tell you something very, that I want you to understand? My father worked most of his life um, working at a little takeout Chinese restaurant that he bought. My dad's not Chinese but he worked at a takeout Chinese restaurant. My dad barely cooked ever, but he was the cook at this restaurant. Six days a week, he'd work, nine in the morning to 9 p.m. every day. Never took a vacation. No such thing as a sick day. I remember one time he got cut one time so bad that I, think, I literally think his finger was about to fall off. Tapes it up, goes right back to work. Now, if you would have asked my dad is that your calling? Do you feel that cooking is your calling? He never would have said yes. But if you say, if you'd ask my dad, is it your calling to provide for your family? To love them well, give them every opportunity? He would say yes. Guys, when I say calling, I'm not necessarily talking about your job. Do you hear me? I'm talking about that thing that God's placed in you that you only you are able to do right now and fulfill in that moment. And you guys all have beautiful callings, whatever it looks like. And I'm telling you that being dressed means being actively a part of doing what God's called you to do. That's what these servants were doing. They were doing the work. Master wasn't there. He wasn't there to watch out for them. But what they were still doing, they were still working. You know the phrase, when the cat's away, the mice will play? No, they were saying, the cat's away, but I still love my master. I'm going to do what he's called me faithfully to do. Do you hear me? Yes, so be dressed in the work clothes that God's called you to. Be faithful in the work that he's called you to. Be dressed and ready. But there's more to being dressed. What is the only garment, the only way to be dressed so that we'll really be ready when the irresistible light comes through on that day? What can we wear, really, that truly makes us ready? A suit and tie? Flannel? I don't know. Your own good deeds? No, the Bible tells us that the only way that truly makes us dressed and ready for that good day is when we're dressed in the record of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that no matter what we've done, it doesn't even matter what we try to do. Unless you're united to Christ through faith, unless you received him as Savior, we will not be ready for that day. But if he is your Savior and you're dressed in his robe of righteousness, then you're ready. Then you're ready. You'll be dressed in his righteousness alone. Guys, can I tell you this? The reality is, is we often try everything possible so much to sometimes earn salvation and right standing before God. 
And that makes sense because if you look at our lives, most of our lives, the way we grow up is the harder you work, the better you do, the more gifted you are, the better stuff you get. Am I right? That's kind of how the economy of life often works. Most of you guys are here and you're like, well, I accomplished what I got because I worked harder than other people. Yeah? You guys, you guys understand? You guys typically what I'm saying? And so in life, you think you take that idea and you relate it to God and you think, okay, well, how can I be ready for God? Well, I can be dressed better. I can be put on my own righteous deeds and my own actions so that when that day comes, when God comes to judge the quick and the dead, when he makes all things right, I'm now dressed well. I got that suit on. I'm looking good. Right? My son Hudson, today Gina said, hey, Hudson, go get dressed. He let Hudson pick out his own outfit this morning for church. Right? And Hudson came down with a, a nice cardigan sweater looking all sharp and smooth. He likes dressing up really nice. Gina went up to check in the room and there was clothes everywhere. I think he tried on a bunch of outfits. That boy, boy, seven, he likes to dress sharp. Right? Very not like his father. But... <laughs> That's what he was like, but he, he wanted to look a certain way. You know, when you look a certain way, you feel a certain way. And, and that's what we try to do. We try to earn our way, look our way in the right standing. But in the economy of God, it's totally different. The kingdom of God flips it all upside down. He says, it's not about what you've done. It's not about what you've earned. It's not about the way you're dressed and what you look like. You'll be dressed with the robe of righteousness of Jesus Christ. He puts his own robe around you. You're dressed and ready because he dressed you. My people, if you don't know, if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you're not ready. I pray, I pray that you do. Because let me tell you, here's what he's... I liken it to the story of the father, prodigal son where this father has, sees his son and he rushes to him and wraps his arm around him and says, go and get my robe. Go and get, let me dress him. My people, God is ready to dress you. To put his robe around you. And for you to be known as son and daughter. And be ready and dressed. But the story goes on and says, keep your lamps burning. One interesting point I want to note that in this illustration, the master has gone away, he's returning, but it says if he comes back at night. In a lot of Jesus' illustration parables about the second coming, the master is away at night. Right? He talks about the thief in the night, they coming away at night. What does that mean? Well, nighttime is typically sleepy time, right? Typically, nighttime is when you go to bed. I, I call it sleepy time. Unless you're one of those people who have to work all through the night and you kind of flipped your sleep schedule. God bless you, those type people. That's not me. For me, the average, for the average person, the nighttime is, is sleepy time. It's late. You get tired. It gets dark. You want to go to sleep. For me, as I'm getting older and older, it gets earlier and earlier. Nine o'clock, I'm like, I'm out. I know, I'm telling you. I used to be like, hey, the night doesn't start till 10. I'm like, now I'm like, what are you doing awake at 1030? I'm kind of so old. But what Jesus is doing here, when he makes this illustration at this, about night and bringing it in, he's, he's pouring out uh, this kind of characteristic of this world. The age between the first and second coming of Christ is a time in which it's, it could be dark. We see it, don't we? We look around and we say, the world shouldn't be dark, but it is. We look around and see tragedy and we realize the world is dark. It's a time where it makes 
easy for people to, to be asleep spiritually. These servants, who are good examples, keep their lamps burning. They keep the light on. Now, this next little bit that I got, I just want to preface it. I got it from Tim Keller, okay? And before I say that, because I feel like Tim's making a few jumps here. Tim, I call him Tim. And so Tim and I, he's making some jumps here, and, um, but I like the jumps he makes. So if you, don't, if you disagree with me, just disagree with Tim here, okay? But this is what Tim mentions in this, on this concept. He talks about what does it mean to be sleepy or to get sleepy? What does it mean to be asleep? And Tim Keller will say, to sleep means that you are affected by dreams rather than reality. In other words, to go to sleep means that you are controlled by the phantom of the dreams that you have. You're controlled by your dreams. You move out of the realm of conscious reality and you move into a realm where you're being influenced by dreams. So spiritually, what does it mean to be asleep? What does it mean to be awake spiritually? To be awake spiritually, then it means to let eternal reality affect us more than the temporary. Do you hear that? What Tim Keller is saying is that what it means to be asleep spiritually means that you're letting the dreams of the temporary, the fleeting, the phantoms control you and dictate you. But what it means for you to be awake spiritually means that you, let, you, you make the reality, the eternal reality, affect you more than the temporary dreams. The idea is this, being asleep spiritually is being led by the dreams of this temporary world more than the eternal reality. It means that you let the fact that the master isn't there to be your motivation versus the reality that he is coming back and he's still your master to be your motivation. Now this is extremely practical and real for me. I'll let you guys know that I am by nature a hardcore people pleaser. I am. And when I'm I'm asleep spiritually, when I let what people think of me matter more than what Jesus thinks of me, is I am asleep spiritually. Do you hear that? Do you hear that by people? For me, I'm asleep spiritually because when the people, when their voices matter, what they say matter more, me having to please my wife even, more than me having to please God, that means I am asleep spiritually because I'm letting the temporary phantoms and the dreams dictate more of my eternal reality. Does that make sense? I will. Let's say you have a terrible boss who's standing in your way. Maybe he's on the way of your goals and this boss has been terrible and you're depressed by it. Why? Because you see this boss is being in charge of your history instead of God being in charge of your history, which is the greater reality. God is real and God is permanent. Who he says about you doesn't change. Maybe people have come to you and say you're a failure. Maybe people have called you worthless. Maybe they haven't, but maybe you feel that way. Why? Because the temporary is affecting you more than the reality. The reality is that if you're a Christian, if God comes to you and says, you're my beloved son, you're my beloved daughter, as a Christian, your identity is wrapped up in the fact that God knows you and loves you and has called you to incredible, eternal significance. He looks at you and says, with you, I am well pleased. What does it mean to keep your lamps burning? It means to stay awake spiritually. It means to turn on the light. It means to say, I refuse to be more affected by this temporary dream than I am by the reality. It means talking to yourself. It means in times of anxiousness and fear and depression, you say, praise the Lord, oh my soul, for he is my salvation. 
It means saying to yourself, listen, the only honors that really last, the only thing that really matters is that God has adopted me, called me his own, said I am his child, I am beloved, and he says that I am worth something. As a matter of fact, I'm worth everything, I'm worth his son. It means when someone has cut you down, someone has stabbed you in the back, someone has called you a name, that they can't let you sleep at night, you're tossing and turning, you turn on the lights, and I, mean, I don't mean the one by your bedside, I mean you turn on the light that says, who cares what peasants think of me when the king loves me? Am I going to listen to the grumblings of people who don't care for me? Or am I going to hear the words of my God who loves me and says, I love you, I accept you? See, by keeping the lamps burning means you're turning on the light. You're saying, I'm going to be reminded that I am not spiritually asleep. I'm called a spiritual awake, awakeness. I'm meant to be awake spiritually. And what that means is that you remind yourself that the real, true, eternal things of this, of this God is what counts for you. That you don't live in a dream world. Verse 37 through 38 says, it will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve, let them recline at the table, but will come and wait on them. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or towards daybreak. It will be good for those servants. Translated literally, this sentence is kind of rendered, blessed are those servants. It's, it's like a beatitude. Again, let me set the scene, the master returns, the lights are on, the fire is warming in the house, the servants stand ready, they have a robe for him, the bath is drawn, the meal is prepared, the soup is ready, everything's awesome. And the master's like, oh my goodness, what a great job. But then he changes things up. The master, rather than being served, stoops down low and he says, my servants, let me serve you. He girds his lawn that he can move around freely. He has his servants recline to the table. He waits on them, he brings them food, he brings them drink, he brings them refreshment. This is a picture of two things. First, it's a picture of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. He put on human flesh. He came to earth not to serve, not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And his service was costly. He washed his disciples' feet. He fed the hungry. He healed the sick, and ultimately he died upon the cross. This image shows the master lowing himself to show the way Jesus does this for his people. The second picture is to show the promise that is ours, that when we are dressed and we keep the lamps burning, the pleasure of our master is ours to enjoy. The image here in this passage, in this parable, is one that master is just enjoying so much the work of the servants. He's delighted in it. When my, when my sister and I were young, I don't remember when, we were really young, we had this bright idea of making my mom breakfast in bed one morning. Right? And it was probably like cereal, I don't know. It was, it was nothing, it, but we, we just delivered it to her. It wasn't, wasn't my dad's idea, it wasn't my mom's idea, but we just had this bright idea. We might have saw it on TV or something, I don't know. And so we went and we surprised my mom and brought her breakfast in bed as she was laying there. And she got such a kick out of it, she loved it so much. And well, because she loved it so much, my sister and I did it every year after that. And it, I think the meals got a little better, I'm not sure. But there was something so amazing for us when my mom just took such delight in something we did. We delighted in her delight. Do you get that, my people? That our master, our God, he's delighted 
by you. What joy is ours. This idea in the parable, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. I feel like for us, it feels like a pat when we hear that language. Well done, good and faithful servant. A good dog, you know? But that's not what the language is. That's not what this is telling us. What this literally tells us is that as we're walking in relationship with our God, our Father, he literally sits this down and says, here, sit at the table, sit at the table. Let me feed you. Like, good job, man. I'm so proud of you. I, wow. Wow. Josiah made eggs today. <laughs> he made eggs. Silly, I know. Not that big a deal. But when my wife came in and told me that Josiah made eggs today, my heart was overflowing. I bubbled up. I was like, oh, he made eggs? I'm just giddy. I, just, I wasn't able to be there. I, wasn't, I didn't see it. But just hearing about it makes me just want to grab him and wrap him up in my arms and give him a hug and say, buddy, great job. You made eggs today. Good job, man. I delight in that. Guys, I don't know how you see God. I don't know if you see him sometimes as this far off figure who just, Every once in a while, I'll throw you a bone and say, good job, buddy. Or do you see him as this intimate father who loves you, who delights in you, who wraps you up in his arms, puts his robe around you, and says, good job. Even when you don't feel like you are. Who says, I love you. Even when you're sometimes falling asleep spiritually. Who says, I'm with you to the ends of the earth and to the ends of the age? I'm with you. My people, being ready, dressed, and keeping our lamps burning is a focus on the future coming of Jesus that allows us to live in this current world with confidence. He's delighted in you. And we can live in this world right now with confidence because He is. Does that make sense? When you see the world and all its darkness and issues, how do you wake up every day and keep on serving and keep on being faithful to the duties placed upon you? You do it by remembering our eternal reality, by being awake spiritually. Now I want to close with this one quick illustration. Let me just put it this way. And hopefully this helps. When my wife was pregnant and we were getting closer to our delivery time, I was girded up and ready for the baby to come. <laughs> I was. Normally, I'm not a prepper. I'm not a preparer. I'm not an organized, typically plan ahead kind of person. I'm more like a fly by the seat of my pants kind of guy. Everything will work itself out. I, if, there's, if I don't pack it, it'll, I can buy it. That was kind of, that's the kind of person I am. But this season, I was like Eagle Scout number one. I was, I was prepared. We had go bags on go bags. You know, we had nursery ready to go. Our car seats were inspected and put in, uh, not just by us. We, were, we went to the fire department. I mean, we, we, were, we were ready. I'm telling you, we were, we were checked. We had stuff for the delivery and for the baby. We were ready. More than all the physical place, though, guys, I was so pumped and ready to see this child coming to earth. And stuff like my sports team not winning just didn't matter as much, Right? 
When I was anticipating the birth of my child, I was like, who cares about all this other stuff? It doesn't matter. I don't even care if I got into a car accident. Well, that would be a big deal, but I don't care. I don't care if I'm in a traffic jam, right? We care about that stuff so much all the time. But I was like, my baby's coming. My baby's about to come into this world. It changed my perspective. I was living in reality of a child was gonna be now with me. I was living in the reality. When we went to go adopt Hudson, Right? The whole time leading up to adopting, it's it kind of hard to, like, is it going to real? Is it going to happen? And as we're leading up to this idea of we're going to have Hudson in our house, our whole identity, our whole reality is wrapped around this future reality. And we knew it was real. We knew it was happening. And so it changed our perspective. It changed the way we lived. We were ready. Waypoint Church, my beloved people, hear this. You have a future reality. Jesus is coming back to make all things new, to make all things right. He loves you. He's called you to purpose. He has his arms wrapped around you. May you live in that future reality. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? What that means is that you have the confidence to be awake spiritually, to not give in to the phantoms and the dreams of this temporary world, but to live in the reality of a heaven of a new earth and a new heavens that is yours. Be ready. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that this is our reality. God, that you are coming again. We don't know when. It's not for us to know exactly when and how, but it is for us to know that it is true and it is happening. So we live in that confidence, God. So we thank you for it. And every time we come together as a, as a body, as a family, that we push this table together, may we be reminded of that again and again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.